Let's have a little prayer then. Father, thank you. Father, I thank you, Lord. I want to proclaim your majesty and your greatness over the situation we're facing in this country. I want to proclaim your faithfulness, your supremacy, your majesty. You're always redemptive, Father. You never let go. Thank you so much you haven't finished with this country. I thank you that you're breathing on your church to show her what her responsibility is. I thank you you're so long-suffering with us in our recalcitrance when we hang back. You draw us forward with your love. Thank you it's you who initiates. Our task is only to respond. Let us respond today, Father, with whole hearts. Father, this day my prayer is that you will make us into responders, that we will respond wholeheartedly to what you're saying to us, that you'll cause us to rise up and take action in the way you want us to, that you will fill us with a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that we may know the hope of our calling and the exceeding greatness of your power towards us that you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand. Father, that we will respond to our responsibility today, that we will see clearly that this promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14, which I'll read in a minute, is a conditional one upon our response. Work in us today, Father, to will and to do. Stir us up, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Stir your church in this hour. This nation is Jesus' inheritance. He died for it. Help us to understand our part. We confess our ignorance, Father. Too long we've been ignorant. Inform us today, Lord. Move us today, Lord, in your purposes for this land of ours. Put a hunger in our hearts to know you and obey you. Help us to be willing, Father. Help us to will. We want to stand before you confident. Those of us, Father, who aren't confident in you, do something today that will reverse all that. Line them up, place them squarely in your presence. Let them experience you. We want to know your heart, your mind. So come in your fullness and be and do just what you want with us today. We love you, we worship you, we bless you, we magnify you. And Holy Spirit, how I love you and I'm so in awe of you, but I love you. Please come and do what you do best. Show us Jesus. Show us what he has in mind. Show us his heart for his people, this country. Thank you, you never condemn, never accuse. You always lead and guide us. So may we come with thankful hearts to hear more of your precious word today. May that word live and outwork in us and through us. Our families, our children, our land and our nation are all a part of Jesus' inheritance, bought by his blood. Enable us, Father, to hear what your Spirit is saying to the churches in these days. For Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Somewhat lengthy prayer, but I did craft it as I'm in the habit of doing before the meeting. And welcome to Passing the Baton number 16, and it's the 26th of July 2008. And today we're going to be looking at the problems in society. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray, seek, crave and require of necessity my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, 
and heal their land. Beloved, this is our responsibility and this is a conditional promise. If, my people. While I was preparing this, um, several things were happening and at the beginning of it there were upwards of 20 stabbings going on. I expect you'll notice if you follow the news at all that they've suddenly stopped. Suddenly we're not hearing it. And I suspect that God has been calling people to prayer. Because as we go on, you'll see that this is our responsibility. And the Lord was sort of giving me a, a prophetic utterance this morning. I wasn't sure. But it's along the lines of, it's time for my church to rise up as an army of prayers. It's time for you to step into your destiny as my bride, my beloved. It is time. It's time that you took your place before my face to declare my majesty and supremacy in the situations in which you find yourselves. It's time, beloved, for us to move our feet. So as I was preparing this, and as I say things have changed, I've noticed through just flipping into the news that there's not been very much, or there hasn't been any more, uh, reports of stabbings. Most interesting. But someone came to see us uh, from Devon last week, week before, for the, for the school we had, uh, and stayed with us. And she left the newspaper behind, and I just flipped through it. And in flipping through it, I found they're having, um, oh, I don't know what you'd call it, like a nice Stedford type of thing, of poetry and art and writings and things for a week down there. And one of the things that had been put forward was this poem by a man called David Prowse. And the heading of it is called, the title is Standard Issue. And I've, if this doesn't speak into the situation right now, I'd like to know what does. I learned the hard way as a kid from every thoughtless thing I did, that in our house a set of rules applied. For they were standards, Mother said, beneath those rafters overhead, that couldn't be resisted or defied. And when I journeyed off to school, my childish urge to play the fool would meet its match and see the piper paid, for there were standards, teachers said, providing stepping stones to tread wherever there were choices to be made. So in that world of black and white, I learned to know the wrong from right. I had my fun, but knew its limits too. For there were standards, people said, and it was up to those who led to grace them with the merit that were due. While in the land that lay beyond, I saw society respond by aiding and abetting the cause, for there were standards, judges said, and there would be a prison bed awaiting those disdainful of the laws. But then the tinkering began by folk immersed in marzipan, whose caring arms were aimed towards the dock. For we had standards, they proclaimed, too stern and strict to be maintained, and maintained, and we should move benignly with the clock. Then piece by piece the structure built on what would earn us grace or guilt was whittled down till rubble-strewn remains. And all those standards whose designs had clear, coherent links and lines became a source for jocular refrains. Now, led with ignorance sublime, we hear of standards all the time from those who gape and gawp upon the strife but ours were not the stuff of charts, just simple rules for simple hearts, which gave the young the building blocks of life. 
Now there's an unbeliever, I would presume, saying there's no framework anymore for right or wrong. Um, oh, as I said, when I was first starting to prepare this on the 8th of July, I saw this headline, I never buy a paper, Joyce was amazed, and I bought it because I saw this headline. Cameron, we must tell the truth on right and wrong. And I thought, my word, things are happening. Tory leader attacks the culture of moral neutrality. Beloved, um, we cannot be like the world and say, what's the favourite words that they use? It's either not culturally relevant or not politically correct. I don't think Jesus was very politically correct. And as a church, we have become politically correct because we are actually quite nervous to say anything about the standards in the, in the country in which we live. On the very day that this man says we must tell the truth on right and wrong and the Tory leader attacks the culture of moral neutrality, I found this at the bottom of the same page. MPs propose biggest easing of abortion laws in 40 years. So... Here we go, a bit more. Carol, could you say something? Yeah, lovely. But on the, in the Courier of the 4th of July, that's the local newspaper here, I saw something that, you see, in the old days, early part of last century, the church was very active in social issues. And there's a, an outfit called Vegans that still exists that um, actually cares for children uh, and people in distress. And there's a picture of the boys working at Vegans Training Farm in Goudhurst, which operated from 1910 to 1950. And it talks about how the, uh, they looked after them. It was Fe James Fegan founded the Christian charity in 1870, seeing the need for permanent shelter and schooling for destitute children in London. He opened his first home for boys in Deptford two years later and began an innovative program to help them emigrate to Canada for a more promising future. When I look around the 21st century church, what I see uh, in the most part for the, from the stream that I come from is people chasing after experience, growing fat on that, and doing very little else. There's no actual what you call movers and shakers in this century, moving in to, to uh, fill the gap. The social services are there because the church has ceased to do their job. Don't know if you've ever realised that. Because Dr. Bernardo, people like that, they were the ones that did these things. Only needs one person in a generation to really um, get a hold of what God wants to do and do it. So our place right now is probably prayer. So God is moving in unprecedented ways these days in his church, healing and delivering her captivating her heart in order that she may become what he intended that she may draw after her the great end time harvest 
before she's caught away to be with her bridegroom. But while she may have stars in her eyes about all this, God is actually very serious. He's preparing her both for war and for harvest. God is purposeful and intentional towards her. She has a function to perform in his end time purposes. She's a bride with combat boots, knowing her commanding officer and learning to be instantly obedient to her command, his commands. So all this is preparation, training for reigning, learning to hear and to heed, getting us fit for service, that we may know what it's like to live under a theocracy. We're living in exciting times where the glory of God is coming down onto his church to prepare us for the coming of our bridegroom. When the church is caught away, no one will be in doubt of who we represented. Our lives will have reflected his glory and will have drawn people to him. I'm actually convinced that we're living in a time when we will live righteous and holy lives, we will be a people of the word, showing ourselves to be other than the people around us, in the world but not of it. A time when God will restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we will know and understand what it really means to be the redeemed of the Lord. That we are, re that we are redeemed from what we were, not from what we were doing. That we will live lives fully displaying the glory and power of God to regenerate fallen man and present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. That we will be an aroma of death to those that are perishing but of life to those who are being saved. And that's your first scripture, I hope it's on the sheet. Second scripture, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. And this is the time when the church will rise up in all her glory to display his glory. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. This is the time that's been prophesied, of the Spirit and the Word coming together in the great end time outpouring on the people of God that will go on until Jesus comes. We will be the people who know their God and do exploits. That's Daniel 11, 32 and 33. And the people who know will instruct many. We must therefore be ready and not have to spend time getting ready for that glorious day of the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to catch us away. Therefore I say to you, be ready, for you know not at what hour your Lord will come. Smile please. So now here comes the commercial. God has uh, instructed me, I believe, to prepare a set of CDs covering such major topics as we've done them already, should a Christian support capital punishment, the doctrine of war, sex and sexuality in the 21st century church, money matters, and the one on homosexuality, did God really say. So they will be available as a package after the summer break, if anybody wants them. I've got a book here. If you want to put your name down for anything, it's in there. Um, 
So if you want them, we'd be grateful if you might consider making a contribution to the production of them. Um, I'm hoping, praying towards, getting the notes for them bound as well and available as a set so that they're actually um, handleable and usable. And if you watch our website, which is psalm131.com, you'll see what's coming up in the next six months or so. Um, it's in the, the final stages of preparation. The trustees are meeting on Wednesday to see how we can do various bits and bobs like downloads fr straight from the thing. And I'll also be putting out a monthly message on CD on there. And if you wanted to, you could subscribe probably in the same way to that. So the site, I hope, will be launched in September and everything will be available on there. The dates are on there to the end of the year. This place is booked, actually, right through next year. I've got 12 bookings, and it's all in the Merving room next year um, because we found that we quite like that one, and it went out into the garden too, and so we'll be going in there. So these studies are to equip you in order that you might live and speak that which is truth, and you might clearly understand the issues and what the will of God is and what the ways of God are. And next month, the teach is entitled, Knowing God's Ways. Israel knew his works, but Moses knew his ways. I don't know about you, but I want to be a Moses, knowing his ways. You can see his works, and it doesn't make diddly squat of difference. I've seen people in the church massively moved, uh, affected by the Toronto blessing and the current Lakeland renewal, and actually it does not last unless they build on what they have. So I want to be someone who knows his ways, not just his works. I believe every bit in his works. And I also believe they're more for the people out there than they are for the church. I believe our hands should be the ones that are stretched out to the people out there. And in the coming months, I believe I'll be talking more and more about how we should conduct ourselves as Christians in a fallen society and a fallen world, as the redeemed of God, holy and dearly loved, shining, as Paul says, as lights in the firmament, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, as we hold out the word of life. That's Philippians 2, 15 and 16, and it's a paraphrase there. Being salt and light in the communities in which God has placed us. The people around you are blessed, you know, because of you. Because God's blessing rests on you, you and your family are blessed. But these studies are not easy because they raise issues that maybe for years the church hasn't addressed, or if it has addressed them, it hasn't addressed them fully. But in these end times, my remit is to bring the truth as lovingly as I can, in order that we may be the people Jesus died for, that we may know his kingdom coming into our lives increasingly on a daily basis, that we may live and move and have our being in the one supreme God, his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we live out our lives in this world as strangers and aliens, whilst we live a kingdom lifestyle here on earth. Every time we do a study like this, we are lifting up the lordship, the majesty, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the total efficacy of his work on the cross. An exchange took place at the cross and daily we're coming into more and more of what he won for us. 
we should be constantly experiencing more and more of his freedom in our lives experientially. This freedom is not a license to please ourselves, but an empowering to do the will of God. As he increases, we decrease. Living a kingdom lifestyle will mark us out as less ordinary. Our value system will be completely different from that in society and in the world generally. We are not of the world, though we are in it. So I aim to present these truths to you simply and clearly, expounding what the word has to say. And this month we're looking, as I said, at the problems in society. And as I've already said, during the preparation of this teaching, a number of stabbings were reported in the press and our society is becoming more and more gratuitously violent every day. We as the church are the people with the answer. And may God bless our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and may the word of his truth witness to our hearts this day. May the power of God fall on us that we might rise up to the high calling he's placed on our lives. God never ever asks us to be anything or do anything without giving us the tools to do the job. The reasons why we miss the, high, the mark of the high calling are many and varied, but today he holds out the scepter of power to us to overcome. And we will see how his ways are revealed to us by principles which are unchanging, as he himself is unchanging. And my prayer is that you will reach out by faith and appropriate everything he has to offer you so that you might indeed reign and rule in this life by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and so fit yourself as the old hymn says and I couldn't find it for service above that you might be fit for service above the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever the primary pursuit of the church should be the glory of God in the midst of her. We should be hasting the day of the Lord, living every day as though it was our last, ready to meet him and cast our crowns before him. Our first duty is loving obedience to God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I say. And then we are discovering in these days what he says. A deep and consistent life lived in the Word will produce obedience because it's by study of what God says about himself and his ways we come to know who he is and how he likes to do things. And our love and obedience grow thereby. <coughs> Excuse me. Without the Word we're flying blind. In this present era God is removing the blindfolds and re revealing himself in all his ineffable qualities. I had to look that up. And ineffable means inexpressible, indescribable, unutterable, unspeakable, deep. Sounds a bit like Dr. Samuel Locke here, doesn't it? You can't get him off your head, you can't get him out of your mouth. So over the last few studies we've been coming to a number of conclusions and really the first one was settling the Lordship issue. If you accept Jesus as Lord rather than just as Saviour, then you must do what he says and not what I or someone else says. If you see God's authority over you, you have to obey those in authority who are over you in society. As God is in control, it's really him that we're submitted to. 
or not. If we have a confrontation facing us between what society believes on one side and what the Word of God says on the other, we have to choose what we will believe. Who has the greater authority? Society or God? Part of the aim of these teachings is to teach you His commandments in order that you might keep them. If you don't know what the Word of God says, you're not in a position to obey it. Mark 7.21, just one of the scriptures on your sheet, says, For within, that is, out of the hearts of men, come base and wicked thoughts, sexual immorality, stealing, murder, adultery, excuse me, coveting, a greedy desire to have more wealth, dangerous and destructive wickedness, deceit, unrestrained, indecent conduct, an evil eye, envy, slander, evil speaking, malicious misrepresentation, abusiveness, pride, the sin of an uplifted heart against God and man, foolishness, folly, lack of sense, recklessness, thoughtlessness. All these evil purposes and desires come from within and they make the man unclean and render him unhallowed. That was probably the amplified version, if anyone's got an amplified, yeah. Mm. The Bible tells us that the fall is real and evil proceeds from the heart of man. What we see outwardly is a manifestation of what's going on inside. What I'm speaking about and constantly seem to be banging on about lately is the it's known theologically as the doctrine of the universal or total depravity of man. Immorality, corruption, decadence, wickedness is the definition of depravity. We don't like it, do we? Put another way, it's the fall, and it's extremely ugly and it's real. So to, to set it in context, we need to look again at the four divine institutions given in Genesis chapters 1 to 12. The first one was free will. The second was marriage, the third was family, and the fourth was national government. Those are the four divine institutions that God put on the earth at the very beginning to produce a stable society within the nations. These institutions are universal. That means they apply to all the nations. The first three were given before the flood, but the fourth one was after the flood. These four, as we found when we looked at the issue of capital punishment, are found in Genesis chapters 1 to 12. As I said, they are universal for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. These are God's instructions for every nation on the earth. God's highest purpose for a nation is that the government will put into effect the laws of God. Once people start rejecting God's standards, like it said in the poem, that's when trouble starts in the nation. Once people reject God and his laws, judgment comes on a nation. The primary purpose of, of national government, we looked at the doctrine of war and how God felt about that and whether we as Christians should support capital punishment. So we had a look at that and decided we should. But now we want to take it back to grassroots, as it were, the cause of the problem and examine the issues in our society and what's currently taking place in our own country, the reasons for it, and most importantly, our role in it. So today we need to look again at national government. 
The primary aim of national government, as instituted by God, is to deal with evil within its own society. It is a way in which mankind is empowered by God to judge and deal with the evil in any given society. National government has been given to restrain evil. If you ask most people what the purpose of government is, they say it's economic or social, but that's not God's original intent. These are important, but first, government should deal with evil within the society. Law and order comes first. If you don't have these, there won't be a good economy or a society at all. There will be no money and therefore breakdown. So the primary purpose of national government is to judge evil and restrain it. Government there is firstly to restrain mankind's evil. That's why Jesus, until Jesus comes, men are put in a place of authority in which they can deal with it. Psalm 82, if you like to turn to it, says God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. If you ever hear anyone saying that this means we are gods, uh, disabuse them, will you? Because uh, it's a small Jew. Verse 6 says, I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. That doesn't mean that at all. It's always talking about human kings or rulers. So Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods or rulers or human authorities. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Pause and think of that. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are God's and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So God is saying here, I stand in the midst of your judges, judging their judgments. This is quoted in the, in the Gospels, John 10.34. Jesus himself quotes it, I have called you gods, he said. It's obvious He's judging them, their authority is of him, all authority is God-given, and so has accountability attached to it. So a judge should be putting forth God's judgments in the situation. They used to, but it's not so in these days. In this country, as we move further and further away from restraint of any kind, and punishment no longer fits the crime. So if God is judging their judgments, what does he see? This is why we studied the issue of capital punishment, to see if our present government in this country was dealing with evil as it should and making attempts to restrain it. Our role in the earth as Christians is to bring about God's declared will through our prayer and supplication to him when we see things are wrong. We also need to speak out loud and clear to the people of the land so they can hear the truth of God. 
As Christians, we have our part to play in society. God put us in this land to pray for it and to be involved in it as his representatives. We are God's ambassadors. An ambassador is the representative of his country living in another country. This world's not our home. We are strangers and aliens in it. We are to represent another kingdom. In doing that, we are not to rebel and to march against decisions that are wrong. We are to live in peace as far as within us lies and pray and speak out where necessary. God's purpose is that peace and order shall be in the land for both Christians and non-Christians. We are the hope of this nation. There are two areas where evil has to be restrained, inner and outer evil. This is the duty of national government. Unless these two areas are restrained, the people within the land will lose their freedom. First of all, there is inner evil. That's not the evil within your heart, but evil within society. This is those who are committing crimes all over the place, and the government must deal with that evil. Murder must be dealt with, as we saw last month. Muggings must be dealt with. Crime must be dealt with. Through the police, magistrates and judges, the government should deal with evil within society so that you have some semblance of peace and order. Notice the line of authority. There has to be a chain of command. It's set there by God. And no one, as I said last month, is to take the law into their own hands. That's why they are there and we must respect them whether they're doing a good job or a bad one. It's not our function to speak against them and criticise them but to pray for them and bless them. They are not our enemies. We only have one of those, Satan himself. Other people are not our enemies. No matter what they do to us, they are not our enemies. So, the fall is real. Beloved, every person on the face of the globe has to come to terms with this issue sooner or later. Is man fallen or is he not? Is man basically evil inside or is he not evil inside? That is the issue. Because that issue will affect your thinking on many, many subjects. The theory of evolution has done much damage even within the Christian church because it removes the fall if we evolved rather than were created in his image and subsequently fell and leads to a kind of crossless Christianity where we can stay the same but enjoy all the benefits of heaven. Many people struggled with the last teaching on capital punishment simply because we want to be the final arbiter on how God does things. We do not actually like very much some of the things he says. Beloved, that is humanism and rebellion. Remember the definition of humanism? It's a system of thought that's based on values, characteristics and behaviour that are believed to be the best in human beings rather than on any supernatural authority. In other words, man's opinion is higher than God's. Many of you may not know that when the Queen was sworn in in 1952, she took an oath of allegiance to the faith of her forefathers. The Queen has a royal heritage going back hundreds of years. Her father before her was a Christian, as was her mother. 
The queen has been placed there by God. You see that in Romans 13. And she has faithfully carried out her duties for more than 50 years. You'll have God to answer to if you're against the monarchy. I know that for some reason or other my son at the moment is, is very anti the monarchy. I think it's simply because public opinion is that way. We are very blessed to have her. Without her this country would have been a dictatorship by now and we would have been in a worse state than we are presently. So we need to consider these things and thank God for our leaders. Respect and authority, for instance, discipline for children. Should they be disciplined at school or at home for bad behaviour or not? Standards. The issue here, yet again, is the fallen nature. Are we going to allow it to run wild in our children or are we going to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? As Christians, will we dare to discipline? What does the Bible say? Those who think children shouldn't be disciplined will say they are like they are because their parenting has been bad, partly. But by far the majority of the problem is the fall or the total depravity of the nature in them that you're seeing. It's in their DNA. You just don't have to teach them to be naughty, do you? On the other hand, you do have to teach them to be good. But you will hear the argument that we mustn't discipline them because it inhibits, inhibits the little dears, and it sure does. It's meant to. It stops them doing the things they want to do, destroying themselves and others in the process. So those of us who believe in the universal fall of man know that children have fallen from the moment they're conceived, as are we all. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely in sin did my mother conceive me. I know when I was first a Christian I thought that meant he was conceived out of wedlock. <laughs> <clears throat> And the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's Proverbs 22:15. But the rod of correction drives it far from him. In other words, he doesn't know how to control himself. He has uncontrolled desires in there. Discipline gives a child security. He knows you love him enough to stop him. Doesn't mean he won't fight you every inch of the way. He will. But children need boundaries. What we have to do, both as parents, and if you're a teacher, this applies to you too, is to teach them how to control what is within them. We do them no favours if we do not. Do you believe in corporal punishment? Abuse does not rule out correct use. It can't be denied that there's been abuse in the use of corporal punishment in schools in the past. But we need to apply the rod where it's necessary. The Bible is not suggesting you should beat the living daylights out of your child, but that you should bring that old sin nature under control for his or her own good. They won't learn self-control if they don't know self-control. The purpose of discipline in children is to produce responsible adults. Without discipline, there is no self-control. So this belief or not in the universal depravity of man will affect our thinking as far as law and order is concerned and as far as discipline as parents and in school is concerned. And it will affect our attitude towards disarmament, our attitude to war and our understanding of society. The spirit of the age is total self-centeredness, anarchy and rebellion. 
A few years ago, granny bashing was popular and it made the headlines all the time. Now it's the youth who are killing each other. Scarcely a week goes by without another young person being killed or maimed, often by other teenagers. We will examine today as we look at the rise of anarchy and rebellion in our own time and nation how we came to this pitiable state where almost daily we read of another teenager being stabbed to death or injured by his peers. Unless we as the body of Christ get the sovereignty of God and his commandments back into our own thinking, we will never make an ounce of difference in society. We of all people should be an example in our respect of authority, clean lives, honesty, kindness, generosity, love, polite and well-disciplined children. We should be an example in our lives and homes of how to conduct ourselves with self-control. We should be able to rule our own spirit well and be in submission to our King and his word. We should be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us, be salt and light in our community and know God's viewpoint on the vital issues confronting our society in order that we may hold out the word of life, a return to God's commandments in this country. We're not to Bible thump, but to show by our lives that there's another way to live and that way is freedom from self-centeredness and greed. God's laws are for all societies, Christian and non-Christian. He wants that murder should not take place. He desires that stealing should not take place. He desires that adultery should not take place. He desires that a nation should not be in debt. So what's happening today? The Bible says that as the days get darker, we as Christians must get brighter. What I want to do is to provide us with information that will help us shine in the world in which we live. But before we can shine, we need to understand the problem and our part in it. What we need to ask is, does the Bible say, is the cause of the problem? As Christians, we're the only ones who can analyse it as it is. The Bible is a historical document as well as being God's living word. And the Bible talks about the rise and fall of many nations. It also tells us why a nation became great and why it fell. This nation was known until relatively recently as Great Britain. Sadly, sadly we do not live up to that title today. During the war we were known as the Bulldog Breed. In Britain, as many other countries over the far past 50 years, there's been a decline, the like of which we have never seen. Society is unrecognisable. The rise in violent crime, rape, drug addiction, drunkenness, every other marriage ends in divorce and abortion is on demand, with girls little more than children being granted various ways of birth control. Even as I wrote this, I showed you earlier on the item in the newspaper about the reform of the abortion laws to make it even easier to procure an abortion. Prisons are full, the police can't cope with the demands made on them. Power is daily stripped from them, making it more and more difficult for them to apprehend criminals and bring them to justice. More and more children are coming from broken homes and even among Christian families the divorce rate's high. We're not immune to what's going on around us. 
If we don't understand what's happened, we don't know how to be effective in the present situation. If you ask people in the street what's the cause of the problem in Britain today, you'll probably get a variety of answers. If you listen to the radio and television, you'll get another set of answers. If you listen to the psychologists, again, more answers. Politicians of all parties blame each other. Some people say unemployment is the problem. The sociologists say that the real problem is that people are deprived of certain things. And you can go on. There will be loads of different answers to what that people think the problem is. And none of them are right. None of them. The real source of the problem in our land is spiritual. We have declined spiritually. We've turned away from having faith in God and his commandments. We've broken them all. And that is what underlies the problems in our land. A few decades ago, a lady named Mary Whitehouse was ridiculed for her stand against immorality in the media, and she frequently made it to the TV screens. Any of you remember Mary Whitehouse? Yeah. And she was made a laughing stock. I was not a Christian when she made her appearances on the television, and it's only now that I see clearly that God raised her up as a watchman for the nation. We are without excuse. She laid it all on the line and she wasn't afraid to fight for what she believed. If you want to find out more about her, uh, go into Wikipedia, the online free encyclopedia, and just whack in Mary Whitehouse and her whole history and what she did and how she fought against things and brought reforms and changes is in there. Very, very interesting. Source of great information that Wikipedia is. So because it's a spiritual problem, it's going to take spiritual people with spiritual information to provide the answer. We need to see the situation as it really is, but we also need to pray above the political stuff and open a window in heaven for our nation. So question number one then is, how does God deal with an apostate nation? The word apostate, as describing our nation, means somebody who renounces a belief or allegiance, an absconder, traitor, runaway, fugitive, renegade. I was shocked when God gave me this subtitle, How Does God Deal with an Apostate Nation? How does he deal with a nation that's gone so far away from his commandments? And the answer is he brings judgment on that nation. Beloved, this country of ours is under the judgment of God. I personally wrestled with this concept for many years, hearing various people declaring that we were under judgment and thinking myself that we were under grace. But I've had to come to the reluctant conclusion that the evidence of my eyes and ears that we are indeed under the judgment of God. But paradoxically we are also in a time of great grace because that's the way that God works. He always gives the human race a time of grace before he brings the ultimate universal judgment which is a different issue. Psalm 82, again, amplified what God is saying in Psalm 82 is right. Now you judged perverted judgments, and now I am going to judge you. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. 1 
Once the people reject God and his laws, judgment comes on a nation and it usually occurs like this. Number one, people begin to laugh at the government and national figures and the media portray leaders and those in authority as fools. Just look at the cartoons in the newspapers. Number two, the children see the adults making fun of those in authority. They pick it up and do the same. And soon the country is without respect, to, excuse me, any kind, and without respect for authority itself. I saw uh, a news item in the week or a bit earlier of some policemen being set upon by a 15-year-old girl in Croydon. She bit a policeman and brought him to the ground. And her gang of followers fell on him as well. The two got two policemen, and they were powerless against these two girls, biting them and falling. Fifteen years old against the authorities. Marriages break down and divorce rises. Love. This is number three. Marriages break down and divorce rises. Love becomes cheap. Life becomes cheap. Values go and morals decline. So these are the things that happen to a, a nation that is under the judgment of God. Can you see any similarities? The last thing to go is free will and you get a dictatorship in the country and the dictator decides what should and should not happen in the land. So that's the order of decline and that's what's happen, what happens in God's judgment on the land and history shows this time and time again. When people reject God's standards, this is what happens. The Bible talks about the rise and fall of many nations and it also tells us why they became great and why they fall. The decline of the Roman Empire was due, scholars say, to the loss of civic virtue. And that is defined as public goodness, righteousness, integrity, honesty, morality and uprightness. The antonym, or the opposite, is wickedness. They had become wicked. But it's God who raises up kings and removes them. Daniel 2, 20 and 21. One of my favourite scriptures. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to to those who have understanding. We'll stop there for a second.